So we're going we're gonna to jump right into it. Like I said, John chapter 9 is where we're going to be today. And uh, if you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, uh, we took a break from John last week for uh, more, more for scheduling purposes. Uh, and Blake preached what we call a standalone sermon, uh, basically from the book of Luke chapter 10. And so if you weren't here last Sunday, I would strongly encourage you to go and to, uh, to look up that resource and either watch or listen to that, to that as, you would, as you would like. And uh, that's, on, that's on the resources tab of our website, actually. And Blake shared the gospel's perspective on who our neighbors are. And so that's, that was the focus. Or really, really, in that case, it was how to be a neighbor as we look through Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan. And so... Why, you know, with this, we're asking the question, how can we as Christians walk in a rhythm of mercy toward those around us as we approach our neighbors? And so also specifically closing in on how we can effectively pray for and care for those affected in the Syrian refugee crisis. And so uh, also you've probably seen the post on the city or on Facebook if, if you're on either of those uh, from Sulphur Community Church, referencing some of the devastating facts about the Syrian refugee crisis, as well as ways that we can engage in prayer for our neighbors as they go through this time, as they go through this rough season. Uh, so I encourage you to use these resources as, as we pray for healing and, and for the love of Christ uh, to be revealed in those who don't know him. And so, and to strengthen those who do, uh, while we're also praying for Christ to, to soften our hearts and, and to allow us to be able to walk in a rhythm of showing mercy as Christ has shown mercy to us. So, uh, so now we're back in, in John chapter 9, and just to recap a little bit about last week and kind of, or two weeks ago, and get you up to speed, uh, the setting is the Feast of Tabernacles, and so that's, that's where we, we still are today. And looking back at chapter 8, Jesus is, is having a discussion with the Jews, Right? And he says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. And so then the Jews are like, Why, who do you think you are? Like, it, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And then Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so that was the pivotal statement of, of that entire conversation. And so this, you know, gets their blood boiling for sure. And they're about to try to stone Jesus, but in verse 59, it says he hid himself and went out of the temple. And so as he's leaving the temple, he's going to pass by a man who was blind from birth and had been reduced basically to begging outside of the temple. Uh, so he discusses, uh, so his disciples immediately, they're going to try to, they're going to try to pin this on some type of sin that was, uh, that was either from him or from his parents or something like that. And Jesus corrects their thinking immediately, and he says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And so this was done so that God would, would tell a story and that, would, that he would receive glory through his life. And so he speaks with, with urgency, proclaiming that he's the light of the world and that they must do the things that God has sent them to do while it's still light. And so with that, he, he spits in the mud, right? And he works together this clay, which, by the way, was illegal on the Sabbath, on the day that he was doing it. And he anoints the man's eyes, and he tells him to go and to wash in the pool of Siloam. And when he goes and washes, he can see miraculously. And so that's where we are. That's where we pick up today. This man has just gone, and he's seen, 
And uh, as we walk through this text, we're going to see five different conversations, five conversations that take place as the Jews try to investigate what, what happens in this miracle, right? And Jesus steps back into the situation uh, from, from the passage that we're going to read at the end today. So Jesus is going to come back into the situation later, and he'll actually be the last conversation that this man has. And so as we walk through these conversations, I want you to see this man's heart, how he's being shaped by what Christ has done for him, has done on his behalf, and ultimately how he responds in faith to the gospel that, that is proclaimed to him. And also, I want you to see, so that's, that's on one hand. I want you to see, on the other hand, how the unbelief of the Jews becomes exposed through what Jesus is doing here. Uh, so Jesus is very intentional, like he always is, and he's going to expose this unbelief that, that's going on more and more as this man testifies about what's, about what's happening or what's happened already. So let's look at the text. Uh, starting in John chapter 9, verse 8. It says, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. I like that. So they said to him, then, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. So it starts off with the neighbors, those who live near him and, and some of the people that were involved in his daily life. And, and like I said before, this man was probably near the temple so that he could beg and, for food from those entering the temple. Because, you know, those, those entering the temple are supposed to be the ones that are merciful, you know, the ones that, that are giving. And so he's probably... Uh, you know, he's probably near the temple somewhere, and they remember seeing it. So these people remember seeing this blind man, and they start to have a little argument as to whether this is actually him or not. Some, some say, yeah, this is him. Some say, no, it's not. No, he just, he just looks like him, you know. That's, that's not really him. And I love this because they're arguing, and, like, the man's in the middle saying, hey, it's me. Like, yeah, it is me. I was blind. Now I can see. And so, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I'm right here. So they ask him, they asked him how this could have been possible, and he gave a very, very simple and clear testimony to what happened. It's very easy to understand. The man called Jesus made mud. He anointed my eyes, and he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received my sight. It, it's as simple as that. And you see, at this point, he, uh, I just want to point out something there. At, at this point, he knew the name of the man, Jesus, who had healed him, but that's as far as he's going to go. He's going to call him a man, and that's, that's it. And so his belief in this man is growing, but he's, Jesus is still just a man in this statement. And so the neighbors, on the other hand, had no regard for this truth. It, it was placed right in front of them very clearly, but they couldn't see it. And so they didn't want to believe it. And also, as we're going to see in a few minutes, Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath. So they needed to get the Pharisees to kind of put their stamp of approval on what, on what had happened. They needed a fair judgment from the, from the religious leaders of that time. That's where they would go to, to get some type of judgment on that. And so many of these neighbors, they were probably disciples of the Pharisees, so they probably wanted to cut out any wrongdoing by this man, this crazy man, Jesus, over here that, that we've heard so much about. 
And also, you're going to see how much the people feared the Pharisees. And especially when we get into the conversation between the Pharisees and this blind, uh, this formerly blind man's parents, we're going to see how, how much they feared the Pharisees. And so they bring this man to the Pharisees. So in verse 13, it says, they, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So, okay, this, this is all a narrative up to this point, right? So, like, we're, we're walking through this, and, th- and this sentence, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes, that kind of that breaks it up. So, when you're reading through this, you've got dialogue, and you've got people talking, and you've got narrative, like, actually, what's going on? And then you see this, John, the writer, stops, and he lets us know, uh, the, he lets us in on this little note that he has. And so when you're reading and that happens, you've got to think, why is that important? And why did he choose to place it where he did in this narrative? So remember, uh, you know, remember in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 32, right? Uh, we should be able to basically recite that at this point. Uh, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So everything is done in this gospel for a purpose. So why did he put this in? Uh, There's two probably main reasons that I found that John included this where he did. Uh, Number one, he he wants to show that Christ was very intentional in breaking these laws, and and I say quote-unquote laws that the Pharisees had uh, made up in regard to the Sabbath. And so the purpose of the Sabbath from the very beginning, right? Okay, we're talking about Jesus healing, healing this man on the Sabbath. The purpose of the Sabbath from the very beginning was to provide rest for those who were weary, right? And to rest in the hope that we have in Christ. And so it's, it's, for, it's for renewal, right? It's, it's our body's own way of healing itself, right? Like that's, that's healing. When we rest, we're actually able to heal ourselves, and so, in fact, we read through a few weeks ago, for those of you who are following along with our Bible reading plan, in Exodus 23, uh, verse 12, God gives a command to the Israelites. He says, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. So healing was built into the framework of the Sabbath from the very beginning. What better day for healing, right? For allowing this man to, to be healed of his blindness and also to be able to rest from the struggles of being blind from birth. I mean, that's serious struggles that you're going through, not to mention the fact that you're actually blind. And so, but the Pharisees, they, they've taken this way too far, right? They, they've made up some pretty ridiculous rules for the Sabbath, and they try to follow all of them so that they could, they could call themselves righteous. Like, that was, the, that was the goal. So one that I read, for example was that if you had a lamp, okay, you had a lamp and it was burning, uh, if, if it was still burning on the day of the Sabbath, you could not extinguish the flame of the lamp. So like even though, even though you're going to waste an entire day full of oil in this lamp, you couldn't extinguish the lamp because that was considered work. And so these are like ridiculous laws. And I mean, there's so many like that that are just ridiculous laws that they had made up And this is how, you know, just ridiculous it was getting. So Jesus penetrates to the purpose of the Sabbath, and he's not caught up in these superficial laws. He's not going to get caught up in that. In fact, in Matthew Matthew 12, when the Pharisees accused Jesus of his disciples doing unlawful things and eating the grain in the 
in the grain fields on the Sabbath, he tells them to zoom out. He, he says, all right, you, you're seeing this much. Zoom out and be able to see the bigger picture. He says, I tell you, in, in verse 6, he says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So he is Lord of the Sabbath. When he heals the man at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5, the Jews persecute him because it, it was done on the Sabbath. But Jesus' response is, my father is working until now, and I am working. So he's not going to engage in their petty righteousness games. He's got a divine timeline and a divine purpose when he's going through with this. And so that leads me to the, to the second reason I think John included this. He performs this miracle in order that these disagreements would take place. So you can see all over the book of John and throughout Scripture that Jesus is a rebel. His, his words and actions are going to penetrate the heart, and they're going to cause division. So think about it. He could have spoken healing over this man and, and walked away, uh, but he chose to make mud and to anoint his eyes with mud, which was illegal on the Sabbath. Jesus knew that this was going to bring about these conversations. And ultimately, we see that these conversations are going to allow a formerly blind man to have boldness, to be given spiritual sight, and to worship Christ. That's what we're going to see. And then their conversations would also cut to the core to reveal the deadness and the blindness of these unbelievers, specifically the Jews in this passage. And so Jesus' actions in this case, they're dividing, and they're going to bring about different responses. And he does that intentionally and purposefully. So let's pick, up, let's pick back up in verse 15. It says, So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He's a prophet. So the Pharisees ask, and this man presents the story of what happened again. He's going to say it again. And he's like, it's very simple. The man named Jesus, who's from God, he came, he put mud on my eyes, he washed the mud off, and now I, I washed the mud off, and now I see. But the Pharisees, they're, they're not going to be convinced. They already have these preconceived ideas about who Christ is, right? And their darkened hearts are not going to allow them to be able to see the truth. So, so they're going to they're become divided in their ideas about Christ and, and his identity. It's going to divide this group, just like, just like we can see here. One group says he can't be from God because surely somebody from God would follow all the rules that we set. And then the other group says if he's a sinner, how does he heal this man? Like how sinners don't heal people. But again, if they're holding some type of if they're holding some type of trial here to try to authenticate this miracle, like to try to see if it's, if it's correct or if it happened, it should be over. I mean, the man says that it happened. There's witnesses to say that it happened. It should be over. But they're not going to be convinced of the truth. And so this formerly blind man, on the other hand, you know, we talk about the Pharisees, this formerly blind man, this, this guy who's been given sight, he recognizes Christ as a prophet. And we see that, that word here, uh, a man from God, in verse 17. So we can see him moving forward to, to trusting in Christ. Although this is not the whole truth, 
that yes, he is, he is from God. He's on the right track. And his belief is getting stronger and stronger as his heart is being prepared for the gospel and for spiritual sight. So in verse 18, uh, we say the Jews, it says the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we, don't, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. And his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And so the Pharisees are not going to believe him, even after his straightforward testimony. And so they're going to try to go to his parents and get the conclusion that they want for the investigation. So they think, maybe we'll try to go a little bit deeper to try to uncover something that this man is not telling us, to try to, to, try to get to somebody else that's going to tell us what we, what we want to hear. So let's call in his parents, right? So they call in his parents, and they identify the son. They identify him. They say, hey, that's, that's our son. Yeah, that's him. But that's all they're going to give. So they, I just want to stop and say this, they know that Jesus has healed their son. Like, this, this has gotten around. And we know that by, by the way that they said uh, what they said, pre, by the way that John put in his note here, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So they knew, they knew what was going on, but they were, they were fearful of the Jews. So word had gotten around, right? But talk about throw your son under the bus completely. Like, John's note tells us that it's from fear of the Pharisees, so they're, I mean, they're not, these are not great parents, right? I mean, they've seen how their son had to live apart from the synagogue, like we discussed last week. He was born blind. So the Jews, they immediately linked that to sin, and that and they wanted no part of that. Uh, his, parents, his parents did not want to be kicked out of the synagogue the way that their son had been kicked out of the synagogue for their entire life. And by the way, being thrown out of the synagogue was a, a very serious thing. Like, it was basically being cut off from all forms of life, from everything uh, that was going on within Israel, basically being outcast from the entire nation of Israel. So his parents, in fear of that, just did not want to be involved with that. And so they say, well, our son was already not in the synagogue, so we'll just throw him under the bus, you know? Not a big deal. But I think more important than, you know, this passage showing us how terrible uh, the response of the parents was, I think more important than that, John wants us to see the boldness that, his son, that their son approaches the Pharisees in, in comparison to his parents, and we're going to see that in just a second. So, Remember that, I mean, this guy is speaking, this guy has been given sight. Christ has given him sight. And so now he's able to speak out of boldness based on what Christ has done for him. So they have to go back to the man again, right? They didn't get the information they wanted out of his parents. They didn't get the, the right things that they, that they needed. So they have to go back to the man again. And so verse 24 says, so for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. 
One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. And so when they say give glory to God here, they're talking from, uh, from Joshua chapter 7. Uh, this, this is something that, that was pretty, pretty common for them. Uh, when the Israelites had taken over Jericho and God had commanded that every piece of silver and gold and bronze and iron were taken from there, that, that anything that was taken there was to be offered to God. It wasn't to be kept for themselves. And so we see Achan, who took a cloak and some silver and some gold and uh, you know, defiled what, what God had said. And so they were actually defeated in the next city, Ai, that they went to. And so uh, because, of, because of Achan's sin there. And so Joshua confronts the men of Israel. And uh, in doing so, he says to Achan, he's, he's trying to get down to the bottom of what, of what went wrong and what happened. And, and so when he does that, he says to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And so in the same way that he's talking to Achan here saying, look, give it up, tell the truth, say what actually went on. He's telling, he's telling the Pharisees are telling him the same thing. Look, okay, just tell us the truth, man. We know that Jesus is a sinner. Give it up. This has gone on too long already. Just give glory to God. Tell the truth. But listen to the amazing response of this man. All of the things that you say and know about Jesus, I, I can't validate those things if they're correct or not. I was a blind man. I, I can't validate those things, he says. But this man took me, a man who had never, like, like we said two weeks ago, had never experienced the sunset, had never been able to see, had never been able to interact with those around him and be able to see. And he made me see. That's, that's the kind of testimony that I have here. He made me see. And so I was looking at this text uh, over and over this week, and, and the thing that continued to amaze me was the simplicity of what this man was saying, right? So he just gives an account of what he's seen. Like, that's literally what's going on here. He's giving an account of what he's seen. And many times I think we make it harder than this. And, and you know, I'm not trying to, I'm not definitely not knocking the study of theology or, uh, you know, we have to study and struggle with Scripture, and, and we need to pour our lives into the study of His Word. But not everything is simple. But when we talk about our witness to those who don't know Christ, you know, one of those components, one of the components of that is simply sharing what we have seen, right? So like Christ has done something on our behalf, how he's graciously revealed himself to us. And if you're like me, you know, you always want to say, well, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't blind and then now given physical sight. And I, and I can't, you know, I can't recall the, the exact moment when Christ called me to himself. So maybe, maybe I just don't have much of a personal testimony. I'll just kind of not, not use that. Well, let me tell you something. If, if you're a believer, then you do. You have a personal testimony because your heart of stone was turned to flesh when you put your faith in Christ. You were brought from death to life, as Ephesians 2 says. So this can't be done by anyone but God himself. So if you're a believer, it's a miracle that you know God, that he calls you his friend and that you'll be able to live forever with him and to praise his name. Like, that's a miracle. So your personal testimony is very important. So this man says, how much more do I have to give you? But then he's going to give him more. 
And so in verse 26, he said, uh, it says, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? So right there, they're recognizing that Christ indeed did open their eyes, did open his eyes. They wouldn't say it before, but now, now they're saying, okay, how did he do it? You know, we, we, we see that it's obvious that he opened your eyes. How did he do it? But he answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. So now we're going to see some boldness coming from this man based on what Christ has done for him, right? And this boldness is going to show itself actually as sarcasm in, in this you know, in this passage. He's going to be really sarcastic as he kind of discusses what's going on with the Pharisees. Uh, remember that these are, the, these are the religious elite. These are the ones that intimidate people, uh, all the common people in Israel, the ones who his parents just basically took their tails and ran from, right? And so, and so they, try to, they try to ask him to give his account again. And he's like, why do you want me to tell you again? I already told you this. You want to follow him now too? <laughs> and so the Pharisees are like, what? And this just, this just makes them angry. And so they reviled or they angrily insulted him. And so they said, so they're, at this point, their anger has gone from, from unbelief to, to actually insulting this guy in their unbelief. And so, so they revile him. They say, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. So they're going to try to make that distinction there, which we know that that's not true. Jesus has already addressed that in John. In John chapter 5, Jesus makes it clear in verse 46. He says, for if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So Moses is the foreshadowing of Christ. And, he's, and their reasoning is that they know God spoke to Moses but they don't know where this man Jesus comes from. So we know, we know that God spoke to Moses, but where, where does this man Jesus come from? They're trying to, they can't authenticate him. They can't, they can't say that he came from heaven. And so the man immediately, sarcastically is saying, so let me get this straight. You don't know where he comes from. You don't know where he comes from. He performed this miracle on me and gave me sight. Come on. But the Pharisees don't want to see this. They've escalated it into hurling insults at this man, all based on truth that he's presented, that they can't deny. This conversation is just exposing their blindness more and more. And as for the man, he can speak out of the boldness that he has in knowing that Christ is from God and that he cares for him. I mean... It's very, it's very obvious here. That's, that's what he's trying to explain to them. If you don't know where he comes from and he opened my eyes, then it's obvious that he's from heaven, that he's come from heaven. To give that kind of testimony, standing up in front of the Pharisees, wow. So this blind man with no formal education, I mean, he's been sitting outside the temple, right? He, he's not allowed to come in. He's about to school the Pharisees in some Old Testament theology. So like in verse 31, he says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began 
has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind? And if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So we don't know where he gained this information from, right? He was a blind beggar. We don't, we don't know where he got this information from. But he knows his Old Testament. I, I don't know if he's heard it from different places or if it's been revealed to him, but he knows his Old Testament. He knows that God does not listen to sinners, that he was the first man to be given sight from blindness. He was the first man in history that this had happened to. No, no record of that in the Old Testament. And the Pharisees can't dispute any of this. So their unbelief actually leads to them becoming physical. And so the next thing, they step into, into becoming physical with him. In verse 34, they, they answered him. They said, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. So they have completely rejected the truth to the point of becoming violent with a man who has just been healed of blindness and throwing him out of the synagogue. And so now Jesus is going to come back into the picture. In verse 35, it said, Jesus had heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. And this is what it comes down to, right? Like, this is what it's for. This is the climax of the entire passage. Jesus hears that they threw the man out of the synagogue, and he actively embraces him again. And remember, this, this man hasn't seen Jesus yet, right? He was given the mud, told to go to Siloam and to wash, but, but he, hasn't, he hasn't been able to, to see Jesus yet. So he's heard him, he knows his name, but he hasn't seen him. And so he wouldn't be able to recognize him. And so Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And it's evident that at this point, this man's heart is being penetrated by Christ. So God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is opening this man's heart to believe on Christ. And that's amazing. This shows a stone heart that's being replaced with flesh right in front of us. And this shows a spiritually blind man moving toward receiving spiritual sight that's only offered from God. And so he's ready to believe, and all he needs to know is who to believe in. How amazing. Like, he, he says, Lord, I'm ready to believe. You just tell me who to believe in. And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Then Jesus, just in the way that he revealed himself to the woman at the well in Samaria, reveals himself fully to this man. And the man responds and saying, Lord, or the Lord of Lords, is what that translates to. Lord of Lords, I don't need more evidence. I believe that you're the Messiah, that you're the Savior. And what was his next move? He worships him. He immediately goes into worship of Christ. So Christ has, has used this man's physical ailment as a means to glorify God and to gather to himself a worshiper. How beautiful is that? What a picture of the gospel. So he's still doing this today, right? He's using the sufferings and the afflictions of those in this world to bring glory to the Father and to gather worshipers for himself. And he chooses us, the, the really cool thing is that he chooses us to be able to step into the affliction and the hurting of other people. 
He chooses us to be able to walk step by step with them, to bear one another's burdens like we do in community. You know, in our community groups, we, we talk specifically about bearing one another's burdens when things get tough and, and to glorify him through all of it. And so thanks be to God that we get to be a part of this glorious plan that he set out in front of us for the world. And so in verse 39, and this is, this is where it kind of can get confusing. So I hope, I've been, I've been praying about this this week, that God would allow me to be able to, to communicate this correctly. And so here we go. We'll see how it goes. So in verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. So Jesus says, uh, right, so we're going to start uh, in John 3, basically. Jesus says in John 3 that he did not come to judge the world, but to save the world, correct? So why is he saying, for judgment, I came into this world, right? That seems like a complete contradiction to me at first sight. So he says, you know, I came to save the world, not to judge the world. Why is he saying here, for judgment, I came into this world? This is not referring to final judgment, which will be done by the Father. That's, that's clear throughout Scripture. But this is more of an immediate judgment that happens when Christ encounters those around him. Right? So just like we saw in the passage today, when he speaks, he divides people. Right? And so some are going to trust in him as their Savior, and his death on the cross provides a way for those to trust in him and to live forever in communion with God. And some who are hearing the word of Christ will reject him, and they'll bring condemnation upon themselves. And so that's the judgment that he's talking about. That's the judgment he's, he's saying. Inevitably, judgment is going to come upon these people because they're going to bring condemnation upon themselves. And so he's using kind of a play on words here that's going to carry out through the rest of the passage. And so he, he comes, he has come so that those born in spiritual darkness like all of us were at one time, according to Ephesians 2, can be made to see. But, this, but so that those who think that they see clearly, like the Pharisees, that do not trust in Christ, that their blindness will be exposed, right? And so that's, that's kind of what we're, what we're talking about here when he says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those like the Pharisees who believe that they see, what, their blindness will actually be exposed, and so verse 41, some more, some more confusing words by Jesus, uh, for me anyway. Uh, so some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So it's also kind of difficult here uh, when the Pharisees are asking if they're, if they're blind here, uh, the blindness that they use, when, they, when they're talking about blind, they say, are we also blind? The blindness that they use, that they're trying to talk about here, is that they would basically be without fault or without guilt. So, so if they're completely blind, according to Jesus, then this means that they would have no way of actually seeing the truth, right? Like the truth, that would not even be a thing. They wouldn't be able to do that, and they would not be responsible for the consequences that come from not seeing the truth. And so Jesus is going to completely turn this around in a play on words again, and he's going to say, since you claim 
to be able to see. You know, you ask, are we also blind? And he says, if you were blind, you, you're right. If you were completely blind to it and, and you had, and there was, there was no, uh, there was nothing on your part, then sure, you would have no guilt. But you say, now that you say we see, since you claim to be able to see, then your guilt remains. So he's not saying that they can see here. He's not saying that they can actually see. They don't have spiritual sight, right? We've, we've, been, uh, we've been through the book of John, and we've seen how, how the Pharisees are spiritually blind and, and how they've rejected the gospel. So he's not saying that they can see here. He's, he's more saying that they think they can see and that that shows as how they are guilty before the Father because they believe that they can see. So he came to his own, and his own received him not, right? Like in John chapter 1. And they've experienced Jesus in all of his glory right in front of their face. They've seen everything. They've seen all the works that he's done. They've seen the prophecy about him. They know the Old Testament, and they still reject him. So their guilt remains. And so believers, we can, we can rejoice, right? Like we've been freed from the power of Satan. Like we can stand before God guiltless because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And this is something that should drive the way that we live, correct? We don't have to be bonded by guilt anymore. When we worship, we can celebrate the way that we can boldly approach the throne of God because Christ has eliminated our guilt. Like Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verses 14 through 16 says, it says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so in the same way that this man was born blind, spoke out of boldness because of what he has seen, because of what has been done on his behalf, we can do the same. We can approach God, we can approach the throne of God with boldness, and we can also approach others with boldness because of what Christ has done. So whether you recognize this or not, this man, just like we talked about earlier, this man's physical case may be different than yours, but his spiritual case is exactly the same. If you're a believer in Christ, a miracle has happened in your life. You were dead, and then you were brought to life, right? Dead people don't come to life without a miracle. And so you were regenerated with a purpose to make his name known. So we exist to make much of God in our neighborhoods and to the nations by reflecting Jesus Christ, right? So when people opposed to the gospel try to discount the hope that is in us, we have the Spirit of God to help us boldly and humbly preach the gospel, to preach the truth. Worship like this, right? In just a few minutes, we're going to sing in Christ alone. The last verse, we're going to sing, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hands till he returns or draws me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. So believe these truths. Live your lives in a way that show that you believe these truths.
And for those of you today who uh, may not know Christ, who don't know Christ, I'm praying that you'd be brought to life by the gospel. That's, a, that's simply what I'm praying for, that, that the gospel would, would take a hold of you, would shake you, and would bring you to life. The harsh reality is that the guilt and shame of sin has been with man since Adam. And Christ is the only one that can lift that burden from you. Christ is the only one that can eliminate that guilt. He is the only one that can do this for you, and you're going to find yourself frustrated beyond belief and hopeless no matter how hard you try without trusting in Christ. And so in this passage, he brought physical sight and spiritual sight to this man, and he is seeking after those who do not know him for them to worship him today.